Welcome back to the Psychedelics and Medicine podcast, where we discuss the future of all things psychedelic and psychoactive, with leading academics at the top of their fields in all things scientific. Self-experimentation has a long history, which has paved the way to many noticeable advances in human history, including seven Nobel Peace Prizes. However, it can be problematic and has led to the death of many. Many notable scientists have experimented with substances to expand awareness and gain scientific insight with a recent increase in psychedelic self-experience. Whilst it's certain that self-experimentation can be used to widen one's perspective and even assist with scientific discoveries, it has recently found itself at the center of an important debate within psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. That is, should therapists performing this type of psychotherapy need prior experience with psychedelics? Today on the Psychedelics and Medicine podcast, we'll discuss the history of psychedelic self-experimentation the current uses, structure and goals of psychedelic assisted psychotherapies, as well as current attitudes towards self-experience within the medical psychedelic community. My name is Ben Clayton and I'm an undergraduate at the University of York studying natural sciences specialising in neuroscience. Today I am once again joined by Dr. Torsten Passi. Dr. Passi is a German psychiatrist, professor at Hanover Medical School and is an expert in altered states of consciousness. In 2018, Torsten co-authored a review of the history of self-experiments with psychoactive substances, and he is featured on multiple panels discussing self-experimentation within psychedelic therapists. Welcome back to the show, Torsten. Yeah, hi, Ben. Nice to be here. It's very nice to have you here. I hope you're well. But to begin, could you give us a brief review of the history of psychoactive and psychedelic self-experimentation? Yeah, to start with, we could mention that since a few centuries, it uh, is obvious that uh, physicians have uh, done self-experiments in different respects, even injecting themselves with unknown substances and stuff like that to find new medications. And there are a lot of um, uh, discoveries which have been made uh, throughout history by self-experiments conducted by physicians. So that's a general thing. A lot of physicians were also of the opinion in the in the former centuries that a method, a new method of treatment, should be tested by the physicians themselves before they start to to provide it to patients. So that was a general kind of ethical uh, rough rule, if you want, in the former centuries. Uh, however, uh, if it comes to self-experiments with psychoactive substances, it's pretty interesting that we are not talking here about self-experiments, uh, what we have called or defined as wild experimentation. So everybody takes something or so. No, self-experiments means they they are in they try to serve science by uh, being uh, conducted in a certain fashion, which kind of complies with uh, scientific standards somewhat. One thing may be you take the substance in a protected, maybe even experimental setting, and then you also uh, describe afterwards what you have experienced. So first of what we can see is that was a part or an outcome, a result of our review, the more primitive the effects of a substance are, for example, taking a sleeping pill does not give you a big experiential kind of world experience. It just 
let you fall asleep. So why should you self-experiment with such a substance? No, it's it's too simple. The psychological effects are too simple to uh, be rewarding in respect to self-experimentation. This is different if it comes to more complex psychological effects, like, for example, with opium, which is different, by the way, from morphine. It gives you also an expanded kind of imagination, sexual fantasies and stuff like that if you take really the real opium stuff. And so that might also might have inspired more self-experimentation. And you can see that in the scientific literature, there are more self-experiments with that. If it comes to even more complex substances like the antactogens or even the hallucinogenic drugs, then you find in the scientific literature much more self-experiments. So it means means the less complex the effects are, the less self-experiments have been conducted in history. And uh, if it comes to more complex effects, we see a lot of self-experimentation. And very interesting fact from an historical point of view is if you look at books which kind of describe the history of self-experiments in medicine, you will never find any uh, words about the uh, self-experiments by physicians with psychoactive substances. It's kind of a neglect in the history of medicine, especially if it comes to self-experiments. However, we have put it together a comprehensive review about these self-experiments and history. And what we can uh, see is that since the uh, uh, later part of the 19th century, so let's say 1850 to 1900, you see the beginning of this, these self-experiments by physicians in a more or less systematic uh, fashion. And we can say from a retrospective view that the psychedelic uh, research in the Western Hemisphere started even with or was inspired early on by self-experiments. Uh, for example, Havelock Ellis, a sexual and psychological researcher from the US, started to take the mescaline in form of the cacti buttons uh, in the late 19th century. And he gave very, very eloquent and fascinating self uh, uh, descriptions of his self experiments, especially in respect to visions and visual changes and so on. Um, yeah, I think that was the first phase when they started with uh, taking laughing gas, which was taken, for example, by the most prominent American psychologist, William James, uh, in repeated uh, experiments. There was also someone from the UK named Humphrey Davy. He has also, an, I think, an, a statue in, in Exeter or so. Uh, where you can, uh, so this was also a very prominent guy who experimented with laughing gas in respect to inducing altered states of consciousness, which in some respects had similarities to the mystical experience, which was becoming a topic uh, more and more during the 19th century for scientific inquiry. And so William James was also interested in the mystical uh, aspects of these exper experiences. So I think First off, we have to look for these very early, very sporadic kind of self-experiments in the late 19th century. And if it comes to the 20th century, you might come up with a new question. I see you, Torsten. Thank you very much. Yeah. And it's interesting to kind of say that, yeah, they started off in this 19th century. Mm -hmm. Can you think of maybe a trigger or a reason why the psychedelic self-experimentations would have started around that point, not beforehand? Yeah, a good question. Uh, I have no idea, to be honest. Uh, I think it's it's more that uh, scientific 
inquiry became broader and broader and at a certain point included the fascinating psychological effects of the psychedelics. They were also out for a little bit at that point already, uh, thinking that these states might have some similarities with uh, naturally occurring psychotic states, uh, schizophrenia, manic depressive illness, and so on. So they experimented also with these substances to kind of explore the world of the psychotic so that they could get an idea uh, what the, uh, the subjective world experience is changed during psychotic states. That was also one reason behind it. And if you look at the early trials, uh, a lot of them were about inducing psycho uh, psychotic states uh, in an experimental fashion. And so they, they, the term model psychosis, uh, a model for psychotic experiences, uh, may be found in the uh, masculine inhibition especially. So now what we can see in the 20th century is that it becomes more and more systematic, the self-experimentation. And then you have to ask, is it really self-experimentation? Yes, somewhat. For example, if you look at Kurt Beringer, who was the main proponent of mescaline research in the first half of the 20th century, he did a lot, uh, a lot of experiments on artists, on medical doctors, and so on. We, would you say self-experiments? Yeah, it was self-experiences, we could say. So you, you are being a volunteer and asking for, oh, can I take part in this experiments because I am interested in maybe artistic inspiration, uh, expanding of consciousness, or even experiencing, uh, exp experiencing a psychotic uh, state. And uh, so far, yeah, these were also, in a formal or technical sense, these were self-experiments too. Um, there was also another uh, systematic trial with um, a psychologist from the uh, psychology department at Bonn University in Germany, where they conducted a very comprehensive study about the masculine uh, intoxication with a lot of psychologists taking part, uh, part in it. So that was another series of self-experiments. Then uh, if you look a little later, uh, you will find that, for example, Timothy Leary, uh, Richard Albert, and Ralph Metzner, this trio of the Harvard psychologists, which, which were inspired by um, uh, psilocybin experiences in the early 1960s, and then they came up with a lot of experimentation on uh, students, on uh, prisoners, uh, as well as on themselves. And there you could also see some detrimental effects of self-experimentation, uh, which have, for example, been called uh, social autism, so that the people are kind of going into a bubble of uh, altered states experiences and don't take the outer world as serious anymore as before. And that might also lead to chaos and, and also to um, disturbing effects on uh, scientific behavior and performance. And if you look at their, at their early trial, the earliest one uh, trial of this group, which appeared in the in the uh, Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in 1963, that was uh, by for, uh, for sure a scientifically designed uh, trial in a way, even if it uh, had the substance has been provided under, yeah, you could say just partially controlled circumstances. 
but uh, the the results and the study design was quite okay. But afterwards, after that year, since the mid 1960s, uh, this combo was uh, based on their own consciousness expanding uh, experiences. They were quite fascinated by the material, and so they did a lot of self experiments and were kind of even becoming. Uh, how should I say, a little bit autistic, a little bit megalomanic, but at last they inspired partially or by in a, in a main way the, the uh, psychedelic revolution, which has been named that way later on. And so therefore these were uh, inspirers, uh, so to say, of these uh, consciousness expansion, psychedelic uh, movement. And so you could say they had a historical significant even significance, even if their use was somewhat dysfunctional and also led to dysfunctional consequences, especially uh, if you look at the prohibition of scientific research, which followed uh, mainly their uh, uh, approach, which uh, became not really loved by uh, the establishment. I see. Thank you very much, Torsten. I think it's really valuable that you mentioned the fact that there were negative experiences on these, right? Because mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we make it crystal clear that self-experimentation does have its downside, despite all the positives it may do. But one thing that's really interesting that you said there is the fact that when we first started doing research with psychedelics, they were more of a model for psychosis. I think that's particularly interesting seeing as what they've taken on in the recent years, because in recent years, psychedelics have started to show promise as first-line treatments for mental health disorders, such as PTSD, major depressive disorder, anxiety, and more. And typically nowadays, they're used alongside therapy in something that we would call psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So Torsten, are you able to tell us a little bit about this type of psychotherapy, how the psychedelic is used alongside the therapy, and how the therapy may benefit from having a psychedelic dose? Yeah, you mean uh, in respect to the patient's experience, or yeah. yeah. So uh, usually you you um, have an uh, altered states of uh, altered state of consciousness in a very specific way, uh, uh, with uh, a lot less anxiety. For example, with MDMA, which is uh, that a major component of the MDMA experience, is this dissolving of anxiety, and uh, because of that, you are much more able to look into yourself, even at your most problematic or difficult places, because you're not affected by the pain, which usually would result from perceiving these things or letting them into your consciousness. So the other thing is that with MDMA, for example, you also have an effect which has been called trust boosting, the boosting of trust. So a lot of people with mental health conditions have uh, lost their trust in themselves, in the world, in God, in their own feelings, in others, and so on. So if we have a substance at hand which can help to reprocess trauma because anxiety is so much dumped down that we can reprocess even uh, ugly events, uh, and also you can promote trust, then you can bring a lot of people out of their uh, mental health conditions because they have to reestablish trust and that's the core of the matter for them. If it comes to the more hallucinogenic drugs like psilocybin and LSD, you have a lot of changes, especially your emotions will be activated, your imagery is enhanced. And so this is somewhat connected. So uh, in front of your inner eye, you experience a flow of thoughts and images, which might be 
which might reveal your unconscious or even your conscious tendencies. And also they, there is a kind of hypermnesia. It means that you can very good remember uh, events from the past, even if they might be a little bit modified, so to say, in memory, as have been uh, claimed more recently. Uh, however, uh, it may be helpful to have these uh, unconscious uh, fantasies coming up and uh, being at last a part of your psychotherapeutic process, especially in the um, uh, conventional psychotherapy sessions afterwards. So the usual antidepressants, for example, they somewhat blunt your emotions and suppress your feelings. And here we see the opposite, a little bit other serotonergic stimulation brings up emotions and activates emotions and your inner life and brings it uh, to a broader experience. And that is what you can experience with the psychedelics. You can re-experience memories and significant events in another fashion than in the usual state of consciousness. And your spectrum of association is quite broadened. And you, you can also take other perspectives on the events in the past as well as in the in your personal world today. And therefore, these substances can be very helpful. There's another aspect of these, um, these uh, therapeutic approaches. Uh, one approach is called psychedelic therapy, and there the therapists are usually out for ego dissolution. It means that you're not feeling the borders of your body anymore, not the borders of your uh, psyche. So you, you are essentially into a feeling of oneness, and there is no difference between you and the world anymore. And you have a very positive basic feeling, which has been called mystical feeling or so. And therefore, your perspective of being in the world might change because of that, because you might also gain trust and you might feel connectedness to everything, to the whole planet, to all other humans and stuff like that. But you also have to cope with that experience. But it can be very helpful, I guess, because a lot of people with mental health conditions, especially if it comes to depression or alcoholism, they are very much kind of imprisoned in their uh, distrust and in their pathological, psychological patterns, so to say. And if we can, uh, if we can dynamite that away for, let's say, a few hours, the brain might come back and reorganize itself in a somewhat different fashion where, where there is more openness, less anxiety, more social competence, and so on. And if that can be enhanced by the conventional psychotherapy after the session, then we might really see progress in a lot of patients. These are aspects of these experiences, yeah. I see, Torsten. Thank you very much. It's yeah, really interesting how you talk about what the psychedelic might do. And you mentioned that after you actually dose, and before I talk about this, I think we should mention, because you mentioned MDMA-assisted therapy, right? So yeah. it's more so just than psychedelic. It's a yeah. substance-assisted psychotherapy. But you yeah. said that after you have the substance, there is then subsequent therapy. And yeah. I wanted to ask, what is explored in that therapy? And what's the role of having therapy sessions after the trip? Yeah, so usually a lot of stuff is coming up during the psycholytic or psychedelic session. Uh, also very personal stuff. And you might also have another framing of your personal problems and stuff like that. And also you might also be confronted with painful memories and, and things which you usually avoid because of the expanded state of consciousness. You can experience that. And you have to have some support and help to integrate these experiences or even facets of your personality, which you have 
perceived. Sometimes these uh, psycholytic uh, or psychedelic experiences can also be psychologically irritating by opening you up and you're not really pre prepared to go out into the usual environment and being so open and stuff like that. So you have to have some therapeutic support to work through these experiences. And in the psycholytic approach, which was essentially the European approach of using these substances in psychotherapy, especially LSD and psilocybin, with this approach, it is typical that you have a series of sessions. Sessions mean means five to 15. And so you have a lot of time to work through your issues in a more or less systematic fashion. While with the psychedelic approach, you have one or two sessions, which might be not really enough to work through your personal issues so you might be uh, helped more by this feeling of connectedness and oneness and and uh, sacredness of the world and and your connections to it um, and so yeah i see it awesome thank you very much um and yeah you're mentioning a lot there about how a therapist is going to be needed to help you integrate these experiences and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is quite a new and novel uh, therapy so there is new training regiments coming out um, but i'd quite like to ask you torsten what does a current training program look like if you wanted to become a psychedelic therapist yeah it depends on the organizers so to say uh, uh, the spectrum is quite broad what we see right now is an, a mushrooming of these uh, trainings uh, also to make money or to be on a trend or to be in or whatever uh, but uh, if it comes to the more serious uh, kinds of trainings, for example, in Switzerland, where this uh, therapy has been also somewhat already established, and we have uh, up to 40 psychiatrists working with special permits with their patients with these substances, MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, um, there you see that they do much more comprehensive training to prepare their physicians by having them going through a three-year a training program with a lot of uh, theoretical stuff, but also with practical things. And right now um, they have established a scientific study, uh, which is looking out for uh, how helpful self experiences with LSD, psilocybin or MDMA uh, uh, are for the therapist. So that that therapists might be become better therapists in the average, at least if they have some self experiences with the, these materials. Uh, however, if you look in the longer, hist uh, in a, in a deep, deeper into history, you will find that there's no shaman or medicine man out there who has not tested all the stuff which he is giving to patients, even uh, um, uh, other medications for other diseases or so. So it's quite a typical pattern that, that uh, physicians try to get accustomed to the medicines which they administer by taking them themselves and knowing a lot about the side effects and potential, also potential safety concerns. And so um, it has been in the past, if you look at the literature about the uh, psycholytic therapy and psychedelic therapy, everybody, every author, without any exception, was in favor of having the therapist uh, having a self-experience with these material materials. And if it comes to the more serious organizations like the European Psycholytic Association, uh, which existed from 1965 to 1975, they had even a, an, an 
a requirement that you could just become a member of that society of professional therapists if you can prove that you have done five self five self experiences under controlled conditions which were usually in an uh, environment which was um, um, uh, therapeutically inspired and so therefore it from my personal view i see there is quite a bit of evidence and insights into this problem and i think it is appropriate that that the therapist has some self experiences with the material and if people come up with with arguments like oh if you do, if you have a, a patient doing chemotherapy with very aggressive substances you don't take it yourself too yeah that's right but if it comes to these complex uh, experiences and changes of consciousness which are which which are really alienating as uh, when perceived from the usual frame of consciousness um i mean it's an essential a part of the learning process as well as for uh, providing appropriate safety that you have some experience in these really strange uh, kind of states of consciousness otherwise you're kind of not knowing what's going on in the patient and i think that's a, a serious safety issue if you don't know what's going on if you don't know if the patient is going on a wrong path so to say and having uh, thoughts like for example i had recently a case where where the patient said oh my heart is not beating anymore and was driven into panic because of this wrong perception, so to say, which was somewhat produced by initial anxiety. And then he was really kind of panicking. So what I did in this situation was I tried to figure out his thoughts. And because I was myself in such a state in my former self experiences, I could predict his thoughts. So I told him, you, I, you know what you are thinking right now. You think right now this. And then you're going to this thought and then you're going to this thought. And at a certain point, he realized, oh, man, the doctor really knows what's going on. And so I can immediately trust him that there is no reason for panic. And then he calmed easily down, you know. But if I, I realized that in that situation, if I couldn't follow his thoughts so well, I would not be able to bring him back. And so, therefore, you know, I think it's an essential uh, requirement that you have personal, personally experienced these uh, altered states of consciousness. Otherwise, you will be not able to follow the patient uh, in a in a good empathic sense, and uh, you might also be at risk, or the patient even is at risk, if the if the guide has no knowledge about the territory. Lovely. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the point there you raise and you say that the fact that the therapist needs to be able to understand what the patient is going through. And the example you gave there with your patient is a really powerful mm -hmm. one. Uh, but I wanted to ask, could you think of any possible methods for explorations of consciousness or altered states, for example, something like holotropic breathwork or meditation? Do you think that those might work adequately as preparation for therapists? Yeah, and this this question has been uh, uh, brought up uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, but this is not uh, for the reason that these are real alternatives to uh, the experiences. It's more like coming from there are so many restrictions in respect to self-experience uh, conducted in an official uh, manner 
uh, that uh, people try to find something else uh, to to inspire or to give the people a certain idea about the, the an altered state uh, of consciousness experience. Uh, if it comes to my personal view, I don't think that these uh, measures are appropriate, especially if it comes to meditation. So meditation is something where you usually calm down a little. Okay, the scientific evidence is not that much about calm, calming down, but however, um, and you are kind of focusing on inner perceptions, if you want, you're doing that with these uh, psycholytic and psychedelic or MDMA-assisted therapies too. Uh, but I think the activation or the stimulation of inner stimuli production is much harsher with the hallucinogenic uh, uh, drugs because they really stimulate your psyche. So a lot of stuff is coming up. Your emotions, imagery, the strain of thoughts is a thought is much quicker and has more sideways and associations and so on. So it's quite a different deal than meditation. So meditation you can't compare in any way. Uh, from my point of view, with uh, uh, psycholytic or psychedelic experiences. Even if a very few, just a very few, uh, people which meditate uh, for a longer time might experience an egoless, mystical kind of state. So similarities in that respect might be there, but these are rare occurrences, and I would not recommend to do 5,000 hours of meditation to experience, let's say, one or two times an egoless, mystical state, a lot of people don't even with 10,000 don't experience it. So I think that's quite a different thing. So if it comes to holotropic breastwork, I think it has uh, more similarities with a psycholytic or psychedelic state. Um, but however, the mystical experience is not a real uh, part of that spectrum of experiences with the holotropic breastwork or with this uh, kind of alteration of your breathing. Um, however, you have a certain stimulation of the brain through the intense breathing. And also your, your brain is going into a somewhat more primitive mode of processing information and thinking and so on. And this is similar somewhat to the psycholytic mode, uh, mode of experience, especially. Um, and you, uh, the, the uh, breastwork uh, as a therapeutic method is based on the fact that if you are getting rid of carbon dioxide, the brain uh, closes its vessels because you bluff the brain by suggesting because of all the the uh, carbon dioxide uh, going out of the organism that there is no metabolism going on and this is why the brain is kind of uh, closing the vessels no metabolism no need for bloodstream and so the 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 reduction of the blood uh, flow in the brain is about 30% if you are really heavily breathing consciously. And that can give you a little bit of an experience like uh, under a psycholytic, especially a low dose uh, is, is a hallucinogenic drug. And what has been not uh, as much paid attention to is the effect that the phase after the active breathing, which might last from 20 minutes to two hours, the active breathing where you're forcing your breathing and uh, going like this. If you do that for a while, you will experience after you stop it, a very deeply relaxed state in respect to your muscles, but also in respect to your psyche. And you are still having less blood flow in the brain means your brain is still in a more primitive mode of functioning and you are not sinking 
in a, an abstract way, you're having more like a pictural thinking. So memories might come up during that state, which ha which happens up following the active breathing. You know, you're you're in a kind of yeah, very relaxed state where a lot of material is coming up in front of your inner eye. And this is a certain similarity to a psycholytic or psychedelic uh, experience. But there will be never any kind of psychotic psychosis-like uh, experience with the breastwork, as well as these kind of psychological irritation, which I spoke about, my heart is not beating. We have never seen that in anybody. And so it's much less dangerous, so to say, in respect to psychotic illusions, even delusions, which can happen with these psycholytic or psychedelic drugs. And so therefore, I think uh, the parallels are, no, there are no parallels. There are some similarities, but there are also a lot of differences. And I don't think that this can be an appropriate uh, way of learning what a person is experiencing under the influence of LSD, psilocybin, or MDMA. There are some, some similarities, but it's definitely not the same. And it also makes not the procedure in a psycholytic or psychedelic session more safe if you have done that breastwork, let's say, three, four times or something. No, it's not, because there are so, too many dissimilarities involved. That's a really, really valid argument there. And I just wanted to narrow in a little bit because you were talking about the mystical experience and the importance of having some type of an experience like that from the psychedelic. I wanted to ask you, what should the therapist need to get out of the psychedelic experience for it to be beneficial for them when they are dealing with patients under psychedelics? Yeah, uh, uh, first off, they should experience the state and not just in one session, because what we know is that even if we test the same subject under the same condition, exactly all the same, a, day, a week later, you might produce a completely different experience. And so the experiential world uh, induced by these drugs is very flexible, so to say. And so you need to look into different aspects and different phases uh, of your experience. And it might be also feel like a, a pe uh, peeling an onion, so to say, you come to deeper and deeper layers. You have also have to have that experience, how deep these experiences can go after you have experienced them the first time when you are not usually able to navigate the experience. You might become more able to navigate the experience in certain directions if you have more experience. So, to, so this means one experience can be definitely not enough. If you're using different materials, you have to have different experiences with different materials. So the usual uh, course of the training in Switzerland, for example, which I think is the most elaborate uh, right now on the planet, they have implemented six self-experiences. So two with LSD, two with psilocybin, two with MDMA, and usually with different dosages, uh, high and low, and also in different settings, means individual sessions as well as group sessions. And I think that can give you a certain spectrum of experiences so that you can feel safe afterwards how to handle these states under different conditions and different doses. And this might be not, to my eyes, that's definitely necessary. And if you look 
at the history of the therapeutic application of hallucinogenic drugs during the last 35 years, you will find that the Swiss Psycholytic Association has existed since 1985 and had gathered, even under official permits, a lot of experiences during these kind of 35 to 40 years now. And therefore, they may know what to do and how to conduct an appropriate training. I'm also on, on that training and at its organization, so I know it on a very intimate level. Yeah. It sounds like a really, really good training program. I really like the fact that, yeah. again, you're using multiple different substances yeah. in multiple different doses in multiple different conditions. It sounds like a very rigorous Thing. Yeah. yeah. And another part you were asking for about the learning experience and its effect. So what we also do is in that training is we we are forming diets. It means one person out of the trainees is the patient under the influence of the substance. And the other one is the what we call sitter. And so he is just accompanying empathically the process of the other person. And two days later, that will be changed so that the other one is in the perspective of the therapist who was before the patient and the opposite around. And this is also provides very much of a learning experience so that you under the same setting conditions will experience both roles. And you by that, you might get much more sensitive about a lot of issues which can happen in between these two people. And that means what can be dangerous in respect to saying something or coming too near to the patient or being too far away from him and stuff like that. These kind of balances can be experiences experienced from both sides. And you can also experience uh, effects of the interaction which might not do something good to you, right? And um, pretty interesting is another historical example I want to bring up here, which was that uh, Kurt Behringer already mentioned the psychiatrist who did the uh, first systematic study on the mescaline inhibition. Um, he uh, conducted uh, funny self-experiments with his assistant doctors at the uh, university clinic. What he did is he offered them to get a shot of mescaline on a working day and uh, they, they have to go to the usual routine meetings and all that. And also uh, being with the patient when, when the physicians were visiting the psychiatric patients, they had to go with the cohort over there with the other doctors, but they were on a masculine trip. And if these doctors came on a bad trip, they were put it aside with two of the other assistants, which tried to bring them down from a bad psychotomimetic trip. And so they kind of learned how to handle people in a psychotic state. And the doctor also, the, on the other side, the, the one with the masculine uh, in his body, experienced how uh, such a situation can be managed optimal or suboptimal or even made it, make it worse. So that was a pretty interesting experience and all the participants have even written about it and uh, have told me these stories in a very fascinating uh, way. I mean, they were still fascinated by these experiences which have been uh, done kind of 60 years ago or so. That was really interesting, but it is the same way, you know, you're 
kind of changing the perspectives from the patient to the therapist. And I think these, these uh, uh, changing uh, perspectives are also an essential part of such a training so that the people are becoming much more sensitive and much more aware of what's going on in the patient, patients and how to handle it. There's also another problem which might happen if you don't have the experience because you want to suggest to the patient that the appropriate way of handling the situation is that he should go with the experience, relax and flow downstream. If you, if you don't have experience that in yourself or with yourself, that that is the way how to handle difficulty that you go with the flow and you're kind of not doing any censorship on your experience. You don't suppress it. You don't defend yourself against it. If you have gathered that trust in the experience and in its inner healing potential, so to say, then you can make the people much more trust in the experience than uh, if you don't have that experience and suggest something to the patient. Oh, go with the flow. You know, I don't know, but go with the flow. <laughs> you know, that's not the really appropriate understanding. And I think that's also very important that the person can trust that you are essentially uh, knowing the territory and the experience. I think that's also very important. And what I've heard is, for example, that the therapist became very anxious because the patient became very anxious and he had no idea why. Because of the consciousness, the framework of in that altered state of consciousness was so strange to him that he couldn't interact with the person anymore. So at last, the person was running out of the room because the, the, the patient felt that the therapist was completely unable to to have any insight in the situation and help him out, you know? And so therefore it's a safety issue also. You make a really, really valid point. And I think that comes back to the importance of the therapist patient relationship in any type of therapy, but even more yeah. so with psychedelics where you're gonna be experiencing phenomena that you've never seen before. And yeah. for some of these couldn't possibly imagine. Yeah, you're, um, you're touching an important point by saying that because in virtually all other uh, psychotherapy trainings with all other methods, they usually give their uh, trainees a kind of self-experience. If, uh, for example, I was educated or trained in hypnosis and we were going through a lot of hypnotic states and even inducing them, the trainees, to each other and stuff like that. So, or if you see at uh, look at uh, psychoanalysis, for example, you have to go through a teaching analysis to experience how this healing modality or, or therapeutic work really happens. And if you are having experienced that by yourself, then you might be much more able to conduct it in an appropriate way. And I think that is not true for all the other psychotherapy methods. It's obviously even more true for these uh, therapeutic methods which work with an altered state of consciousness. Yeah, thank you, Torsten. I, you, you sound spot on. I couldn't agree more. And just moving back, I think you were talking about the Swiss therapeutic practice, and it sounds like they've got a really, really good training system. And it feels like a lot of times whenever we're talking about psychedelics or substances, mm -hmm. Switzerland seems to be kind of in the, per in the right place and doing it properly. And a lot mm -hmm. of other countries are currently well far behind that. So I wanted to ask you, because you said that there are a lot of legislative issues already with making therapists get first-hand experience. Mm -hmm. Can you see any oh, ethical dangers 
ethical issues or dangers with forcing therapists, with psychedelic therapists, I suppose, to have some yeah, experiences. Yeah, that's that that is the case. Um, uh, there are these um, there are some problems with that or potential problems. Uh, for example, we were confronted by the IRB when we introduced the study about these self experiences in a training course in Switzerland. They were asking for uh, what's about. Uh, people who don't want to participate in that specific session, for example, in one or two. That does not present a problem because the study has such a design that even if we had the dropout which couldn't partake in one session, it doesn't matter for the whole uh, study. Uh, but they were also eager to clear up the issue of group pressure so that people might find themselves in a situation that they say, oh, I can't stay out of it because the group is doing it and I'm kind of having an obligation to, to participate in it. Otherwise, the, the training will be incomplete and so on. This, these are issues which can be handled and we got the IRB uh, approval at last anyway. But uh, I think these are problems one has to think about. And there is also a certain risk, for example, that people might not uh, having an easy time to open up and that can also be an issue so the eyes could see for example a problem with having people there which and the, the the atmosphere might be not as much trustworthy especially in the beginning when the group learn to know each other and stuff like that and so that people might suppress a lot of stuff during the session even the experience itself or might try, avoid it by talking too much, stuff like that. And if that happens, it could be that after the session, you might experience an altered state, kind of a flashback. And uh, there might be also an experience of a lot of emotions coming up after the group pressure and the training situation is over. That could be. But what we uh, we have a lot of safety measures uh, built in. For example, we have five psychiatrists on board or psychotherapists, certified psychotherapists, when we are conducting these self-experiences. And we are also doing a pre-screening on the day before the session. And you could also say, okay, if just psychologists and physicians with psychotherapy license can take part in this training, then you have also a good... Uh, uh, position because you have a lot of people which have already trained their introspective capabilities and so they know themselves somewhat and they could say okay I'm today too anxiety prone so I will not take the drug and this is not a problem and so therefore there are potential problems by these things but you can you can easily say okay if you have partaken in let's say three or four of these self-experiences that might be even enough uh, might be not completely sufficient, but might be enough to get the certificate. And so therefore, I think even if people would stay out of one or two or three experiences, that might not present really a problem. But it's better if you have a broader spectrum of experience. Otherwise, you have to gather it when you are treating the patients or later on in your personal life or so. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Torsten. It sounds like a really, really valid points as always from you. Um, I just wanted to ask a little bit more about this study that you mentioned that is currently going on in Switzerland, because interestingly, there has been no study looking at the role of self-experience in the therapist within a, a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy setting. 
if you could skepticize, what type of results might you think we'd see out of that study? Yeah, so the study has um, um, a few uh, different purposes. First off, we want to uh, look at if it is feasible to do these self-experiences in an appropriate setting, even outside the university clinic. That's the first thing, the safety issue. And then what kind of psychological complications might result? We will also explore that. Uh, um, and we are also looking for quantitative measures in respect to empathy and in respect to therapeutic attitude. We might find some changes in this, but uh, I personally am not very optimistic to see these changes which can be quantified that way. Uh, I'm mostly interested in our second measure, which is uh, qualitative interviews. Semi-structured inter interviews with the participants to explore in what way these self-experiences have been helpful to them or not, you know. And so I think that's the requirement of appropriate um, uh, scientific inquiry that you that you know what you're looking for. And so first off, you have to explore the territory in a very free sense. And that means you, you conduct these self-experiences and then you interview the patients afterwards with a set of questions about what they experienced, how they found it useful, what the, the dangers might be and what aspects we could do research on in the future in that respect. Um, the study has also been designed uh, out of the need to conduct a scientific experiment to embed the self-experiences, because sometimes the uh, specific laws about narcotics and their, the exceptions to be given by the government from this law for therapeutic purposes and so on, do usually not allow for self-experiences of therapists. They are not explicitly forbidden, but they, the law is usually uh, saying uh, you can give exceptional permits for scientific purposes, experimental purposes, or medical purposes. But this does not fall under this, these categories. Yeah? Just in an extended sense that you could say uh, it's a medical application because you're, you're, you're uh, training or educating medical personnel. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And that's, I suppose, more to do with definitions and categories than actual facts. Um, but I think, yeah, we will leave it there for today's episode. I want to ask you, Torsten, do you have any concluding remarks that you'd like to say? Yeah, uh, in respect to uh, scientific studies about self-experience. Okay, I'm not against these studies, but what I see is that there was nobody against self-experiences for uh, being part of the training of the therapist, but the opposite around everybody was in favor of it. And it was quite obvious to all the people which have worked with these materials that people, trainees, uh, ongoing therapists should have a set of these self-experiences and the number, the magical number is uh, at minimum five. And I think I would agree from my expertise and a lot of colleagues agree with that model. All right, Thorsten, thank you very much. As always, thank you for listening to the end of the Psychedelics in Medicine podcast with me, Ben Clayden, and our fantastic guest, Dr. Torsten Passi. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to rate us on your preferred streaming platform, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and your preferred streaming platform for new episodes every month. That's all for now. Thank you and take care.